Uh, it's good to chat. Good to have that conversation. How's life going? I wonder how you went. I wonder how you went with that question. I wonder if you were actually brave enough to be honest. Did you just say good? Life's pretty good. Doing all right. Or were you actually brave enough to be honest and say, actually, there's some stuff in life that's you know going on. It's a little bit hard. It's a bit difficult. Maybe that wasn't long enough to get through that sort of a question to, to get to that depth. A lot of people have been asking me, a little bit too public maybe, sorry. A lot of people have been asking me this week, how's life going, Steve? And at the moment I'm saying, yeah, it's, it's pretty great. I'm doing doing really well. In case you haven't heard, this happened this week. Um, this is Harry, my new son. He was born on Thursday. And he's, he's pretty pretty good, isn't he? Little Harry, four kilos, came home yesterday. Life's going well. This is the whole family, all apart from me. Uh, Josie, our two-year-old. Laura, my wife. Um, Josie's learning not to cuddle Harry's head too much. Um, but apart from that, life's going good. Uh, people ask me, how's life going? I say, oh, at the moment, good, a little bit tired. But generally, pretty good. And we celebrate that, don't we? When, when life's going well, you celebrate it, you're thankful for it. Uh, but when life's going hard... Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, for some of you, you would remember about this time last year, around May, things weren't actually going that well for Laura and myself. We were pregnant uh, with our first son, Joshua, and he died in the womb. Uh, we never got to bring him home. Uh, we never got to, like we've seen Harry, we never got to hear him cry. Never got to see him and hold him in our hands. Uh, it's That's life, though, isn't it? Sometimes life is amazing. Sometimes life is just really hard. And the question that we're going to be asking tonight is why is that? Why is, why is life actually sometimes so great, but then it just feels so broken? I'm sure this isn't just my experience, is it? I'm sure this is the experience of many of you, uh, that sometimes... We're just doing well. Praise God for that. At other times, life is just horrible. Uh, why is life like this? Why are the highs and lows? Why is it that if if God is a good God, uh, why don't we just have the highs? Why can't we just... Like, why do we have sickness? Why do we have pain? Why do we have things like depression and addiction? Why do we have those things? Why do we have divorce? Why do we have death? Why do we live in a world like we live in at the moment? Uh, that's the question we're going to be wrestling with over the next 20 minutes or so, maybe 30. could be a little bit long. I'll just send that one out there for you. Um, why do we live in a world like this? Well, the Bible's answer is actually very simple. Uh, the Bible tells us, those first three chapters, the Bible tells us that we live in a good world that's been broken. We live in a good world, but it's been broken. We live in a world that was actually made perfect. God set it up. He made it beautiful. It was right. Everything was good. But something changed. Something came along and stuffed that world up, frustrated it. Uh, Our world, it's no longer the way it's supposed to be. Uh, If... You want to take notes? There's some place. There's a place in that program that you've got on the way in. Uh, follow along there. 
We're answering this question tonight. Why is the world like it is? The Bible says it's because our world is broken. Um, a lot of people will say, well, it's just karma, you know. What goes around comes around. Uh, if you're good to people, then good things will happen to you. If you're bad, then bad things will happen to you. But I don't think karma is the answer, is it? I mean, you just have to step back a little bit and look at the world, look at the way things play out, and you soon see that karma's actually not true, is it? I mean, seemingly good people, bad things happen to them. Um, the psalmist actually says, David in the Psalms, he kind of steps back and looks at the world, and he says, why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who go about doing evil seem to get away with it and maybe seem to be going well? The answer is not karma. Uh, no, the answer, why life is like it is, why we have this experience of sometimes good, sometimes bad, uh, is what Jesus, uh, is what Genesis 1 to 3 teaches us. That life is like this. Because we live in a good but broken world. Uh, tonight we're starting the first of a six week series. Uh, you would have got one of these in your program. Uh, starting a series called His Story Answers Your Questions. Uh, we're going to spend six weeks, and what we're doing is we're actually going to read, not all of it, uh, we're going to read through the Bible. We're going to be doing a Bible overview. So we're going to go from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we're not going to be able to touch on everything that's in there. That would take us way too long. Um, but what we're going to be doing is trying to just get a sense over the next six weeks of how this book, the Bible, actually all fits together. Uh, how it how it actually is one story, God's unfolding story of how he's going to rescue and change our world. Uh, that's what we'll be doing over the next six weeks. As we do that, uh, we're going to be tackling some questions like we're doing tonight. Tonight's question is, why does the world feel so broken? Uh, and you'll see there that there's some other questions that we'll be wrestling with. Is someone going to do something about this mess? Religion? You mean slavery, don't you? Um, these are some questions we'll be wrestling with. And I just want to commend that to you. Come along, come for the series. But why not take one of those, ask some friends along. Say, what do you think of this question? How would you answer that question? Um, give them one of those little postcards and try and bring them along. That would be good uh, for people to hear God's answers uh, to our questions. Uh, obviously, doing a Bible overview in six weeks we're not going to be able to see absolutely everything. Um, so to help us do that, we're actually going to be watching just some little videos over supper. We're going to have a couple of questions uh, to do that. They're just a 10-minute easy video to, to watch. And that'll actually help us as well, just to get a big idea of how the Bible is one story. Um, so stick around after this. Uh, stick around for supper. We'll stick the video on as well. But tonight, as we start, uh, we're just going to tackle three chapters in the Bible. Uh, I looked up on the internet, actually, because I have no idea about statistics like this. There's actually about 1,180 chapters in the Bible. Um, we're going to do three tonight, cover about three. Um, so it means we're going to have a fair bit to do over the next few weeks. Um, but that's okay. Because uh, these first three chapters, we've read two of them. We read two and three. We skipped chapter one. Um, they actually show us a lot. They show us about how God designed the world, how he set it up, how he made it. What he wanted it to be like. But then chapter 3 actually shows us what happened to it. Why it turned bad, why it broke. 
So let's get stuck into it. Uh, if you've got a Bible there, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, should be pretty easy to find. It's about, I don't know, right at the start. Um, <laughs> Genesis 1 and 2, you might know, Genesis 1 and 2 are both accounts of God's creation. They both tell the same story. Um, they both show the way that God designed the world. But the two chapters, um, they actually have slightly different focuses. Uh, or is the word foci? I never know that. I think it's foci. Um, Genesis 1 teaches us that in the beginning there was God. That's how Genesis 1 starts. In the beginning there was God. God created the world. How did he do it? By speaking. God spoke the world into being. It was effortless for him. Uh, it goes on to tell, Genesis chapter 1, goes on to tell exactly what God created. Uh, it goes through that big long list of things. God says, let there be light. And there was light. Let the, let the waters and the sea separate. And they do. Let there be fish. Let there be birds. Let there be animals. Let there be birds in the sky and fish in the sea. All those sorts of things. God speaks and they come about. They're made. Uh, and after that, after those six days of creating, God kind of steps back and he goes, yeah, I like it. It's really good. He says, it's good. I like this world. But he holds back a little bit. He, he doesn't, we saw this last week, didn't we? He said, it's actually, it's not yet very good. Because something's still missing. So what does he do on day six? Well, God makes people. People like you and me. God makes people who he says are in his image. They're in his likeness. Uh, God, our God is God of relationships. Father, Son and Spirit, they live together in perfectly loving relationships. And that's actually how we image God. We're in his likeness like that. Um, we as people are created to live in relationships where we just love each other, where we get on, where we don't fight and quarrel and all that sort of stuff. We're supposed to live like God does, in loving relationships. That's how we image him. And God, you see, he puts these people uh, that he makes, he puts them in charge of this world that he's already made. In chapter 1, verse 26, uh, God gives them a purpose. God says to them, he says, I want you to rule over my world. I want you to subdue it, is the word that he uses. Subdue the world, fill it. Go about, he says to Adam and Eve, he says, go and like just have kids, have lots of kids. Actually, create a whole community of people who will live on this world. Fill it up with people who will love each other and who will listen to me. That's God's plan. That's the way God designed it. He made a place and he put people in it. And he says, listen to me. Do what I say and love people as you do. Have lots of kids. God steps back after he's put people in charge and he says, it's no longer good. It's very good. Now that people are there, it's very good. That's chapter 1. Here's a little bit of an overview of it. Um, God's people in God's place in right relationship with him under God's rule. Uh, that's the pattern of how God set up the world. God's people in God's place in right relationship with him. Then when you get to Genesis 2, which actually starts at verse 4, Genesis 1 kind of goes to 2, 3, that's the end of that story, and then chapter 2 kind of starts at verse 4, which is interesting, um, Chapter 2, actually, it has the same 
pattern or the same design, it actually reinforces what we see in chapter 1. The difference is, though, that Genesis chapter 2 focuses in on God's relationship with people. Whereas Genesis chapter 1 spoke about the the whole seven days, Genesis 2 actually just focuses in on day 6, when God made people. Uh, It focuses in there, and what we see in chapter 2 is that God loves people. God created them. He made them for relationship with him, and he wants them to live in this world that he's made where they'll have joy and love and peace and they'll just be happy. He wants us to have the good life. That's why he created it. In chapter 2, verse 7, we see how God gets involved with making people. Uh, He reaches down and he forms man out of the dust of the ground, a little bit like a a potter. If you ever did um, that kind of clay artwork when you're at school, you know, you get a piece of clay and you mould it and you make a little person out of it. That's what God does with Adam. He moulds him, he forms him. But then he does something that we can't do. He blows into his somewhere and all of a sudden he comes alive. He's, he creates life. God breathes life into this little piece of clay. He gives life to us. In verse 8, we see God reaching down. He gets his hands dirty again. And this time God is planting a garden. Uh, God is making the, the trees grow. He's making a beautiful garden. This is no kind of detached God who doesn't care about us, you see. This isn't some kind of far-off, aloof God who, who just doesn't really, isn't really interested in what's going on. Now, our God is a God who loves his people so much that he's actually willing to get his hands dirty in the process of making them. He plants the garden, the Garden of Eden, and he puts Adam in it. He breathes life into him. And it's perfect. Genesis 2 describes the perfect life. There's trees for Adam to eat. He doesn't have to work hard. He doesn't have to eat Macca's food. He doesn't have to do all those hard things that work just is. He just picks fruit off the tree. Um, it's good. The other things that, that are going on in chapter 2 is there's rivers seemingly flowing everywhere. They've got weird names, as Duncan discovered. Thanks for having a crack at them, Duncan. Um, there's these rivers flowing through the garden. What's the point of the rivers? Well, rivers are full of water. Water which brings life, which keeps life going. That's the point of the rivers. They actually are the source of life. They bring life. And these rivers, you see, they actually flow out of the garden. Uh, It's a hint that the garden was actually meant to get bigger. The Garden of Eden was meant to spread. That's why God tells Adam to work it and to tend it. So what we see here in Genesis 2 is that Adam wasn't meant to just sit in the garden by himself. Uh, no, God put Adam in the garden to work it, to make it bigger. Uh, what God wa- wanted wasn't just one man, Adam, kind of enjoying the good life in God's place. No, he wanted more and more people, heaps of people, who would live in that place in right relationship with him. So that's why he does what he does next. In verse 18 of chapter 2, God makes a helper for Adam. He makes someone who will help him in this task of extending the garden. 
someone who will actually be able to um, give birth to children so that they can fill the earth with people who will love God, love each other, and listen to God in all that they do. Can you see what God wants? Can you see how God set the world up? He wants people to flourish. He wants people to have life, to have life to the full. That's the way he designed it. What we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that everything is good. All that God made was for them. There was no sickness. There was no pain. There was no fighting. There was no hardships. There was no death. No, it was just life. Life as God's designed it. God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. But this good life, it, it didn't last for that long, did it? We only got two pages into the Bible and something's happened. As we heard from chapter 3 that Anna read out, Adam and Eve, they lost the good life. Uh, they lost it because they did something. They ate from the tree that God said not to. Uh, there was one thing in the garden that God had said not to do. He'd given them so much freedom. He said, eat from any tree that you want. They're all good. Just that one tree over there. Listen to me on this one. Trust me. Don't eat from that. Don't eat from that because if you do, you'll die. But they didn't listen, did they? They ate from that one tree. They didn't listen to God's word. They, they thought that, that life could be better if they, if they were the ones who called the shots instead of God. They thought that, that if they didn't listen to God, then, then that would be good, that their life would be better. But it wasn't. Because they didn't listen to God, God had to do something. He kicked them out of the garden. He said, you guys can't live here anymore. Now some people I know, and maybe this is you, um, you might think that's a bit extreme. Just a piece of fruit. Come on, God, you know. What was it, a pear? What are they worth, 50 cents? Climb at Macca's, they're like a dollar fifty these days. I don't get Macca's food. Anyway, we might go there after this. Just a piece of fruit, right? What's wrong, what's, what's wrong with God? Why is he so ticked off about a piece of fruit? Well, the point is that it's not just a piece of fruit. Now, it's actually what eating from that tree stands for. Uh, it's what the tree symbolises that matters. See, this tree actually represents God in the garden. Uh, it's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 9, and again in verse 17. What we see about this tree is that this tree is at the very centre of the garden. It's right in the middle. The whole garden actually revolves around it. And importantly for us, this tree has two names. Uh, firstly, it's called the tree of life. Uh, it's a symbol of God who is the centre of all life. Uh, this tree is meant to stand as a reminder to Adam and Eve that God is the God who gives life, that he is the one who is the source of life, and apart from him, without him, away from him, there is only death. There is no life apart from God. Secondly, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's called that because, again, it represents God. God is the one, you see, who determines what is good and what is evil. 
It's God alone who knows what is truly right and what is wrong. He knows that because he created us, because he made us. So what happens when Adam and Eve eat from the tree is that they're saying that that they don't want God as the centre of their lives anymore. No, instead they're they're putting themselves at the centre. They're saying we can have that place. They push God aside. They say, rack off God. We don't want you. We're going to decide from now on what's right and wrong. We want to decide if this is good for us. We don't want to listen to you. We don't want you and your word at the centre of our lives. We're going to put ourselves in the centre. We're going to decide. We're going to call the shots. We'll be right from here. Thanks very much. God, you can just rack off. We want to do it our own way. That's what eating from the tree means. That's not just eating a pear. That's telling God to rack off. That's telling God that they want to call the shots from now on. At its heart, it's actually a distrust in God's goodness. It's believing the lie that Satan tells, uh, who says, who tells us that God doesn't really love us. That God's kind of, he's kind of holding out on us. That if we just kind of go behind his back and, and if we don't really listen to him, if we make the decisions, then we can have a better life. Then, then life will actually be better. If we just call the shots for ourselves. Satan, you see in chapter three, the snake, he tricks Adam and Eve. He persuades them to distrust God. He says, don't put God at the centre. Don't make him the centre. He doesn't really love you. No, put yourself at the centre, is what he says. Put yourself at the centre, because that's where the good life is found. You decide what's right and wrong. You won't die, no. You'll enjoy it, won't you? still does the same thing today, doesn't he? Why not just look at that porno? You'll enjoy it, won't you? You decide if it's good or evil to look at that. Don't worry about the fact that millions of young girls are having their lives ruined in the sex trade. Surely that's not evil. No, you decide. You'll enjoy it, won't you? Why not spend all that money on yourself? Don't lovingly listen to God and give your money to the poor and needy. No, make yourself the centre. You decide what's good. Spend it on yourself. Just do it, Satan says. You'll enjoy it. Don't try to follow God's way. Surely he doesn't know what is good. No, he's holding out on you. We fall for it, don't we? We put our trust in Satan's lies rather than in God's word. We rebel against God. We sin. We make ourselves the centre by living for our own selfish pleasure and instant gratification. I don't know if you um, if you saw at the end of last year, uh, the Oxford Dictionary actually announces a word of the year, a word that kind of sums up the culture of our year, uh, the trends and things like that. Uh, does anyone know what the 2013 word of the year was? Selfie. Selfie. This is the one. Selfie. That's the word that describes our current culture. Uh, that word that, you know, you get your phone out, take a photo of yourself, stick it on Facebook, look at me, I'm the centre, 
We're obsessed with ourselves, aren't we? It's our word of the year. We're living with ourselves, gratifying ourselves. I don't know if you saw this photo, though. Uh, this is a photo happened last year, December last year. Uh, this guy on the bridge. He's about to commit suicide. And this girl is taking a photo of herself. Selfish, isn't it? In that moment, she doesn't care that that guy's going to jump to his death. She'd rather get herself a few likes on Facebook so that people will like her. Selfie. Selfish. It's how we live so often. We just think about ourselves. And what does this kind of self-focus lead to? Well, it leads to all sorts of pain, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, it meant God banished them from the garden. He gave them what they actually chose. Uh, they told him they didn't want him, so he sent them away. And away from God, their lives become so hard. Where previously life was good, now life is just difficult and frustrated. In Genesis 3, we see that life itself is hard, where, where life-giving food was just meant to be on the tree and it was easy to get. Now, in chapter 3, verse 19, we see that it only comes through sweat and toil. Where, where life used to be extended through childbirth, now it's only through painful labour. And I know all about that, but not as much as my wife. <laughs> See, their relationship with God, when it's messed up, all those other relationships get messed up too. Instead of loving each other properly like God designed it, Adam and Eve, now they become envious of each other. Uh, instead of their kids kind of loving each other and enjoying God's good world, well, Cain, the first son, murders the second. He hated him. And that's the story of mankind, isn't it? Apart from God, what we do, we just live for ourselves. We don't love others. No, we just tend to treat others so poorly. You just have to look at the news, don't you? We've got wars because we don't know how to get along. So we don't know how to love each other. We've got famines, not because there's not enough food in the world to feed everyone, but because we don't know how to share. Passing our days, we live selfishly, away from God. Not loving others, but loving ourselves. And for Adam and Eve, and I think for us too, when we're really honest with ourselves, we're ashamed of the times when we do that, aren't we? We feel exposed by those times when we know that we've sinned, when we've just got caught up in ourselves and sinned against God. And we, like Adam and Eve, we want to hide it, don't we? It's what Adam and Eve do in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 3. God comes into the garden. Uh, he comes to find them. And what do they do? Well, they hide from God. They hide in fear. Uh, God says, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? See, in their sin, they know that they've done evil. And they're ashamed of it. They want to hide from God. So what God does, what he does is that he sends them out of the garden. He gives them what they've chosen. He gives them life apart from him. But before he does that, God actually does something to protect them. Uh, God clothes them. 
with the skin of animals. Uh, he sacrifices part of his own creation. Blood is spilt in order to clothe mankind, to preserve them. After that, God sends them out. Verse 22, he sends them out lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. This is an act of grace, you see. For God to send them out and bar them from eating from that tree is an act of grace. It's actually an act of God's goodness. Because God doesn't want mankind to eat from that tree of life and live in that broken state forever. God sends them out. He sends them out clothed in the skins of dead animals. And you just kind of think about what that might look like. It's a picture that mankind is no longer under God's rule, but they just have death ruling over them, don't they? They're living under this reign of death. It's the world we live in. And we need to be rescued from that, don't we? Uh, We as mankind, we need someone who actually come and do something about this life of pain and death that we live in, this life that we've actually chosen for ourselves. And God in his grace, God in his goodness, he, he knew that at the very beginning. I don't know if you noticed, as we read in chapter 3, but in the midst of all that language where God said life's going to be harder, where curses were coming down, in the very midst of all that, there is a wonderful promise. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 15, God speaks to Satan, he speaks to him about the offspring of the woman. And he says this, he says, The offspring of the woman shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a snake. Um, anyone tried to kill a snake? Yeah. A couple of people. It's quite exciting, isn't it, really, for a little bit? It's exciting because you don't want to get bitten. Because it would be bad for you. What we see here is that it's going to be a man come and he's going to crush this snake, this serpent, Satan. He's going to crush him, but in the process, the man's heel will be struck. He'll be bitten. He'll actually die in the process. Uh, There's a hint, even back here in Genesis chapter 3, you see right at the very start of the Bible, there's a hint that this isn't going to be the end for man and God. God's actually going to do something about this situation that they've got themselves into. And this is the benefit, this is the reason why we're doing a Bible overview. Uh, Because when you do a Bible overview, you actually get to know the whole story. You don't have to just stay in Genesis chapter 3. So when we step back and when we see the whole story of the Bible, what we see is that this brokenness, it's going to be mended. It's going to be fixed. Uh, God is going to do something so that one day man and God can live with each other forever. And it's going to be great. It'll be perfect again. It will never end. Uh, If you've got a Bible there, flip over to the very last page, Revelation chapter 22. Go right to the end of your Bible. Uh, Because what we see there when we get to the end of the Bible is that the Garden of Eden actually returns. Only it's better. Uh, The vision is that God is going to make everything like Eden was always supposed to be uh, if mankind had never sinned. Uh, This is, if you don't have a Bible, here it is on the screen. Revelation 22, 1-5 says this. 
Then the angel showed me, this is John the Apostle, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. (coughs) The picture you see there, it's good, isn't it? It's not a good picture. God's original design, it's, it's back in place. God's people in God's place, in right relationship with you. I hope you can see the, the similarities to the Garden of Eden. Uh, the river is there, giving its life, giving water. The tree of life is there, yielding its fruit. God is there, in the centre, ruling from his throne. But do you notice the differences? It's no longer a garden. It's now a city. It's a city because there are so many people there. Once you get to a certain size, you've got to call it a city. I think Bendigo is still working out if it's a city, isn't it? Um, We like to think we're a city here in Bendigo. Um, Once you get so many people, it's now a city. Uh, God is there. He will reign. People will serve him and reign with him forever. There's no death in this picture, just life. But most importantly, and I think this is the most important difference, is that there's actually a new character once you get to the end of the Bible. There's a new character right in the centre. There's a lamb. A lamb who is with God on the throne. A lamb who is now at the very centre of everything. Uh, To find out the full story of the lamb, of how he got to be at the centre, how he got to be there with the tree of life, with God on the throne, uh, to find out that you actually need to read the whole Bible. There's some homework for you for the week. Um, because when you do, when you actually step back and you see the whole Bible picture, you find out some amazing things about this lamb. Uh, you find out that this lamb was slain. Uh, this lamb was killed, just like those first animals were killed to protect mankind. What we learn about this lamb is that he's not actually a sheep, he's a person. Uh, He's a man. He's the man who came from the seed of woman. Uh, He's a man who, when you see his life, he never made himself the centre, but he always lived God's way. He always said to his father, not my sinful, selfish will, but your will be done. The man, this man, this lamb, is the one who fulfills that promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, that one of Eve's children would one day come and crush the head of Satan, that he would destroy the effects of sin and overthrow death once and for all. But in doing so, he himself would be bitten. He himself would be struck down. This promised one, he would taste the sting of death in order that he might overthrow it. 
And the New Testament tells us, in case you haven't guessed already, that this promised one, this man, is Jesus. Jesus who who died on a different tree. Uh, Jesus who died on a tree where God's goodness and man's evil truly met. Where all our sin was nailed there to that cross with him. See, Jesus came and he died on that cross so that all those who have chosen to do evil, all those who have turned away from God, when they turn back to him, when they put their trust in him, will have God's goodness once more. So when you make Jesus the centre, you see, you no longer face the guilt that you have. You no longer you, you no longer have to face that destiny of separation from God in sin. But you have the glorious hope of living in that picture of Revelation 22, living in that coming new creation, life forever with God and the Lamb. Why is life like it is? Why does life often feel so broken? Well, it's because we sin. It's because we live for ourselves instead of the good of the other. It's because we still live under the reign of sin and death. So while we wait for Revelation 22 to come, while we wait for this coming future, how are we supposed to live? Well, we should be people who actually cling to the cross of Jesus. Cling to him, make him the centre of our lives. Because when we do, even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of a painful life, we can still have joy. We can still have peace. Because we know that all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame has been nailed on that cross with him. We no longer have to face that. Instead, we have a glorious hope. We have the hope of that coming new future where we will always be with God and live for him. So, will you do that? Will you cling to Jesus? Will you start living for him and stop living just for yourself? Uh, Stop thinking that living for Jesus is second rate. Uh, Stop giving in to Satan's lies that, that God's holding out on you, that he's not really good. No, believe his word. Obey him. In the messiness of life, cling to the hope of the gospel. Cling to him. Cling to that good news that he was nailed on that tree of death so that one day we can eat from the tree of life. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your goodness. We see the way that you created the world, the way you set it up, the way you wanted us to live with you and for you and with each other. But in our selfishness, in our sin, we just so often live for ourselves. We don't trust that you are truly good, that your ways are truly good. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the lamb that was slain so that we can have life forever. May we put our trust in him. Help us to live for him. Help us to find our joy in him so that we can have life forever. Amen.